Okay, I think we are good to start, ladies and gentlemen. A very warm welcome to our webinar today, in which we want to discuss the concept of strategic interdependence and its pertinence to economic diplomacy and how the EU can and perhaps should engage in the World Trade Organization in the future. Our event today is a little different from our events in which we typically discuss specific EU laws and strategies. Today, we want to examine the broader scope of economic trends and escalating geopolitical challenges. And against this backdrop, we want to explore opportunities for the EU to shape global trade rules in the future, emphasizing the World Trade Organization and also acknowledge its, I would say, ongoing institutional crisis. Our event's primary goal is to scrutinize the concept of strategic interdependence and to what extent it could serve as a guiding framework for EU trade policy primarily. But we will also delve into aspirations for EU strategic autonomy, specifically the question of how to maintain political influence in shaping global trade rules when the EU is losing economic gravity, basically, which is a trend that won't go away in the future. Strategic interdependence may also assume greater relevance in the ongoing initiatives to rejuvenate discussions and negotiations within the World Trade Organization. And we want to talk about this too today with an inside expert who has a lot of experience working in the uh, World Trade Organization. Um, that said, I am very happy and also very proud that we have two distinguished expert uh, guests with us today. We have Rossi Ignacio Torreblanca, who is the Senior Policy Fellow at the New Pink Council on Foreign Relations and the head of ECFR's Madrid office. And Rossi is the co-author of a very interesting ECFR paper titled Strategic Interdependence, Europe's New Approach in a World of Middle Powers. I have put a link to the uh, to this paper in the chat box. And we also have Ellen Wolf, who, however, has not yet joined the room. So you please do, uh, do not be surprised that you don't see him. Um, he has not yet joined the room. We've not yet received a message from Ellen, uh, but we very much hope, of course, that he will join us in a minute. Ellen is the distinguished, I shall say, visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And many of you, you know him. He's also the former uh, Deputy Director General of the World Trade Organization and equally important, the author of a recent book titled Revitalizing the World Trade Organization, a guidebook to the WTO. I've also put a link to the book in the chat box. So each of our experts will now have the opportunity to have a 10-minute intervention to share with us their thoughts about the overarching theme. We will then move on to the uh, discussion and, of course, answer questions from our audience. So if you, your audience, have any questions or comments 
please put them in the chat box so I can refer to them in a minute. Thank you very much in Edwards. And let us now start with Rosé. Um, Rosé, uh, what is the concept of strategic interdependence actually about? And what specific strategies does it suggest for the EU and its member states to protect their economic and wider political interests? Okay, thank you, Matthias, for the invitation. Thank you, ECP, for organizing this. Um, I'm also looking forward to this discussion, especially with, with someone I've, uh, I admire a lot and has a great knowledge on, on, on the issues uh, related with, with trade, as Alan. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would want to, to start by saying that pretty obviously strategic independence is an attempt to overcome what we understand that is a faulty concept, which is a strategic autonomy. And, uh, you know, we, we all have been discussing a strategic autonomy for now quite a while. So, you know, more, I mean, the arguments more or less. And, but the problem is that strategic autonomy is faulty on two levels. The first one, honestly, which is conceptual, I wouldn't be much worried about if it worked in practice. So the fact that strategic autonomy is a concept that is expansive, that it's circular, um, that is not really well defined, um, and that has moved and stretched from defense to health, wouldn't be, uh, you know, could be understood as a kind of an academic criticism if it worked in practice. The problem is that it's that it doesn't work in practice. It does it divides us internally in the EU, at least on two fronts, economically and in security terms. So the concept is clearly not only performing, but also kind of revealing our divisions rather than actually helping to heal them or to overcome them. Because economically, it opens up a debate on protectionism versus openness. And then we have to end with uh, all these qualifications of open strategic autonomy, which of course, does not make any sense and then proves that the concept is faulty. France rejects to use the concept of open, I mean, the adjective of open in documents produced by the Council. So it's only the European Commission that can use open strategic autonomy. Then the Council, as we saw in Granada, has to talk about resilient EU. So it doesn't make sense because it really does not unite us on and, does, and, and shows that we don't have a clear strategy when it comes to protectionism versus openness. But then in security terms, where, where the term emerge, it's also the same. Some countries, member states, fear that the concept undermines um, NATO an American presence in the continent, whether others would want to use that as, as a way to enhance European defense at the cost of that. So um, th there are many reasons, both conceptual and practical, uh, which would lead us to overcome the concept of strategic autonomy. Then, you know, as, as, as Matthias and Ethipe in your papers have, uh, and, and I think most of us will agree, it is true that it doesn't, even if it works, would it make sense for the EU to, 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 to become autonomous? Uh, is this what we want? Is this what defines us? Uh, would, would, would we be able to, to achieve that? And at what cost? You know, so uh, we've thrived under interdependency. We've thrived in an open multilateral rules-based system. So part of the problem with the concept of strategic autonomy is that it does not only not work at home, but it also projects an image abroad of the EU, which puts countries away, off, 
or they understand that we are disengaging rather than actively seeking to uh, to work with them. So, uh, and then comes uh, all the idea of uh, of uh, how do we behave in a bipolar world uh, presided by by confrontation and a kind of a new Cold War uh, era. We think that strategic interdependence is a tool which equips us much better to engage in building relationships with middle powers or countries which want to work with us, which broadly with whom we share approaches and views of the need of having an international and a multilateral rules-based uh, international system, uh, because we factor in also their interests uh, when we discuss strategic independence. So we think that it's also a tool for abandoning strategies of decoupling. We and, and we all agree, even if we disagree maybe on how much they're risking in which fields and to which extent, but it's true, we learned the hard lesson with Ukraine and we are learning the hard lessons with some critical raw materials, but also semiconductors that um, you cannot be so dependent or on, on, on some relations which are toxic geopolitically. And it does not make sense that in moving from a carbon a base economy to a digital and green economy. We just trade dependencies from oil in the Middle East to um, uh, to raw materials coming from uh, from anywhere or other countries from which we are dependent. So it would be really paradoxical that we would end up decarbonizing Europe but becoming ultra dependent uh, on 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 political relations that are not um, uh, safe. And, and that we cannot guarantee their continuity. So, but we, by 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 moving to strategic independence, we can address middle powers uh, in their concerns. We can help also build global governance institutions, even if it's that starts from EU regulations. I think we are uh, critical of the Brussels effects, in in the sense that it is not enough or it is counterproductive for the EU to just sit down and draft regulation and then see what happens in the rest of the world. That's, uh, I would say, not only counterproductive, but really stupid because there are countries out there, as we know now with AI, but with many other EU regulations that would want to have this conversation, that would want to adopt similar legislation that are broadly aligned on, on those goals. So we think we should incorporate ex ante in our regulatory processes, what are the interests and, and, and the possibilities to have in, an impact on regulations uh, worldwide. And I think AI is a very good um, case in, in, in point. And then we are opening a new generation of trade uh, agreements in a world which uh, it's hungry, maybe or we are hungry for keeping trade open, but it's really turning into protectionism. Uh, to try and think of new relationships in which we not only talk about trade and investment, but knowledge um, and capacities for countries which want at the end more or less what we want in terms of decarbonizing and, and green and digital transitions. I'm biased here by my uh, kind of Latin American background, but if you look at the agreement with the EU just signed with Chile, it is very clear that that's can at least a model for things we want to do, we should want to do to invest in countries which are contested 
in which China is also present, but in countries in which their values and their orientations are largely towards European uh, goals in terms of uh, uh, fair digital and, 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 and green transitions. Um, but also in terms of decarbonization and green hydrogen and, and so on. So, so I think uh, we think strategic independence changes the conversation into the things we need to do and how to better relate with, uh, with countries out there, not uh, imposing our agendas or not projecting the view that we uh, are just shielding from competition or that we just care about other countries to preserve our security and our safety. But, uh, but not theirs and, and not taking into account their interests. So I would, I would stop maybe here for this first uh, round. Yeah, thank you very much, Rossi. Um, we actually wanted to hand over to Ellen, who has not yet joined the, our webinar. Uh, this is a bit unfortunate because I actually wanted to uh, get him speaking about how this concept of strategic independence, which is, if I understand it correctly, more focusing on what the EU can do together with other countries, more or less bilaterally outside the realm of the WTO. I wanted to hear his perspective on this, but I mean, I can also address this question to you, um, um, Rosé, you mentioned the um, EU-Chile modernization agreement, if I understand it correctly. Um, and you argue that policymakers in the EU should continue efforts in building strategic partnerships with individual countries, perhaps also smaller groups of countries, uh, countries like Chile in, emerge, in, an, in an emerging a la carte, multipolar um, world. Um, can you explain to our audience um, why this is in your eyes, a good way to proceed? And are there, especially, are there any other countries that you would consider priority countries for the EU to engage with uh, countries that would qualify as priority partner countries in the near term future? Yes, of course. Um, it's, it's not necessarily only by turning to individual countries, but we have to scout and to scan uh, countries out there with whom we want to have these kind of conversations. We know, of course, that the, the broad realm or the OCDE is a territory um, which is very fertile for engaging in, in these kind of, of discussions. Uh, when we speak of, um, of a strategic independence, uh, we've seen also agreements with countries which they do also want their strategic autonomy, like Kazakhstan. They don't want to be ultra-dependent on, on Russia. And we have signed also the EU an MOU with Kazakhstan on, on raw uh, critical materials and supply chains. We've done it as well uh, with Namibia. Um, uh, and there is a, a pending agreement between the EU and Mercosur, which uh, we think is also very important. Uh, as a signal that uh, we are not uh, hijacked by domestic sectoral interests in Europe, but that we have a broad view of, uh, of what we want to do abroad and how do we want to um, compete when necessary also with uh, other actors like, uh, uh, like China. We, and you're right that if you do this through only a series of bilateral agreements, 
you run the risk of, um, of course, taking too long and not impacting on the on, on the global uh, trade system. Uh, but it is also a way to um, uh, to try to strengthen that system because you're gonna end up meeting these countries, of course, at the WTO and at the rest of uh, multilateral um, uh, institutions. It's um, it's also important also to to show and uh, you know some friends in uh, in Latin America they use the concept and I like this very much of the global north. You know they say it's the global north that is the problem. You know we need to understand that we are not uh, living by what we have preached in many regions of the world, that both the US, uh, but with the IRA and, and, um, and, 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 and made in America, and also you know, the China by decoupling, are increasingly looking at the rest of countries as instruments of their own industrial development. Uh, and industrial uh, policies, but they're not trying to understand how those countries can industrialize along uh, with them. So, so we think that this is also very important. Uh, within the realm of the WTO, I was um, I was reading through Alan's um, commentary uh, and the speech he gave on the memory of Chiru Osakwe and his mm. recommendations. And I think, you know, I'm, uh, and I confess here that I am not a WTO expert, but we saw, we've seen in the EU to which extent differentiated integration and PESCO, permanent destructive cooperation structures, can create groups of people who can then have impact uh, at a later stage uh, in others by pioneering. So the important thing about these kind of agreements is that you don't exclude. It's if, if some countries want to exclude themselves from from this then that's that's their decision but you are not in principle excluding excluding them something which is very interesting also about these strategies is that you know the eu is perceived of course as trying to restore multilateralism by unilateral means and i'm speaking here of mechanisms like cbam right Mm -hmm. uh, you want to, to to bring back countries into multilateral fora, into multilateral governance, but you are imposing costs on them. Um, these kind of agreements, for example, like the ones uh, we are signing uh, with Chile, are positive in the sense that you kind of deactivate um, uh, the bomb, which is CBM for many of these countries, because you start opening a conversation on can we attract European investments to the region in order to decarbonize our economies and produce industrial goods like green steel that can then be exported back to Europe? And then, you know, in terms of the emission schemes, we can do that from our countries at a lower price in a much more efficient way because, you know, countries that are intensive or are abundant in, 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 in green energies in solar, wind, and water do, do not, are not heavy on industries, you know, but if you manage to pair this, it's also, I think, a great possibility. I think it's also important that we at the EU avoid, as I, as I was saying, that China is also doing and that the EU runs the risk of doing, of course, the US, is that we open another round of extractivist trade, that trade, uh, you know, it's only looked up uh, in, in especially to support the, the green and digital transitions um, by by just looking at mineral resources. And this is a this is a discourse or this is 
when we approach countries in the now, you know, so-called or not so well-called global south, uh, we have to be very careful. When we show up uh, in Latin America after not having had a proper summit and, and policies related to the region and not having been engaged with Mercosur agreement, we show up now and say, look, you know, how long no see, I love your raw materials. Uh, this is not a winning strategy, you know, for, for many of these countries. So if the name of the game is reindustrialization for everyone, um, we should try to, to do it in a way in which we understand that, um, as Alicia Barthenas, the, the Mexican uh, uh, foreign affairs minister, said in Brussels in the launch of the EU-LAC um, um, alliance or, or, or summit, that uh, they do want also to reindustrialize, and they do also care a lot about their sovereignty. This is not something that is our preoccupation. They do want to, to be able to choose freely foreign policy-wise and not to be coerced uh, into for into into trade and economic decisions, you know that they don't want to to accept. So um, so I think this is a, an, an offer that is much superior to what we have now in terms of protectionism, extractivism, and not living by our by our words when it comes to uh, to trade. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> you mentioned sovereignty. Um, and previously also about, talked about the motivation and also the flaws of the EU strategic autonomy um, um, initiative, to put it that way. Um, we've recently published a paper on the process effect. And if there's anything where we can see a process effect, it's in the political debate about sovereignty, autonomy, and also about defending uh, national values um, and national security. So I wonder whether the EU uh, that we see today is really interested in, in a way, re-establishing the overall narrative of why it is important to defend free trade and especially the principle of non-discrimination. Um, when you look at, for example, um, the provisions, major provisions in the EU Mercosur agreement, um, which has not been ratified, of course. When you look at the EU Chile modernization agreement, are there um, rules that you would consider um, of being in the interest of other countries as well, where you could, for example, think about extending these regimes to a club of like-minded uh, countries that could be OECD countries, it could be less developed countries, in the spirit of uh, open plurilateral agreements, um, which would, in a way, sideline the WTO, but nevertheless, uh, would effectively um, avoid um, ending up with the um, prominent noodle bowl of international agreements and and provisions. So, what do you think? You know, the the, the basic questions I want to ask is: What do you think about open plurilaterals? Hmm. Yeah, well, in fact, some of these countries like Chile have been doing this. Um, in the, in minilateral ways, with uh, Chile concluded this landmark agreement on on digital trade and I mean services 
with um, with New Zealand and and, and I remember mm -hmm. if I correct me if it was Singapore as well, right? Yep. So um, this um, theta trade uh, and uh, so uh, so this is kind of also I think if you can build modular agreements that are then expandable, I think some countries of course in the global south are very interested in this because they don't want to attach themselves exclusively to um, to the EU, to China, or to the US. The doctrine for many of these, not only middle powers, but countries uh, that are in transition, um, is to uh, to play what they call kind of an active non-alignment for many of them. Uh, and therefore, they need these kind of rules when it comes to, to, to trade in digital services, but also for green investments uh, that I think that are of course in the interest of the EU, but are also in their in their interest. Uh, you know, part of the problem, as we know in in Latin America, is that countries don't trade enough with themselves. That is very poor in terms of regional integration, despite having, of course, uh, many uh, advantages and many potentials in in in, in that realm. Uh, but for example, one of the things that uh, that the EU, I think, has to be more consistent in pushing for. It's uh, regulations on on data, uh, because in many countries, for example, again, I'm I'm, I'm referring to Latin America, uh, legis local legislations are aligned, uh, but only Argentina and Uruguay have received data um, adequacy decisions uh, from the EU, which in fact means that your uh, you know your digital services are in the internal market. Uh, for all purposes, and that is a very powerful tool to the extent to which we can engage by these kind of agreements and promote them, which do not need um, parliamentary ratification uh, and somehow stay below the radar of um, of also maybe groups where are uh, seeking, uh, you know, protectionist or promoting protectionist agendas, but you can very effectively integrate markets and digital markets um, in a in a way that, that that's not that difficult. Mm -hmm. Of course, the EU has to be not necessarily lower the standards, uh, but try to help uh, create uh, those standards by which um, these countries who are uh, you know who are aligned. On, on, on these, they have co-signed um, uh, an Ibero-American chart of digital rights, which includes all the right things in terms of, uh, or, or the things that we share in terms of uh, human-centric approach to technology and so on, but they lack maybe the money for implementation, they lack the agencies, that's the same case also in cybersecurity, uh, where you should be helping more because it doesn't make sense to digitalize without ensuring that this is done uh, in a in a secure way, so uh, you know there are elements in in these trade agreements, specifically in when in the association part, in the cooperation part, that are, I think very important. For example, with uh, with with Brazil also, the problems are with the, with the trade, but it's a mixed agreement, right? So, and in the association agreement, there are mechanisms for helping monitoring deforestation, for example, for using mm -hmm. um, Copernicus to help authorities to monitor uh, in real time deforestation by using European technologies and also creating the innovation ecosystems at home and so on. You know? So I think we 
we are too narrowly um, looking at, at, at trade issues, disregarding potentials on, 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 on digital trade and, and, and trading digital services, but also in investments, um, which could help also, as I said, you know, deactivate these concerns, these environmental concerns that, uh, that we have. And I think both uh, the OECD and there are many institutions that are looking at this with great interest. And it's for you to see, you know, to decide, you know, how much of this can the WTO deal with. But I think we have enough uh, experiences there that we need to probably clear the minds uh, which prevent agreements at the WTO level by doing enhanced cooperation in some of these areas uh, with some countries with uh, we can uh, deal with uh, uh, effectively, right? If we are able to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now I can I can also see that there are provisions and areas where there should be, from my point of view, um, broad appetite from by governments from um, you know at all levels of economic development to cooperate, like uh, monitoring and managing um, uh, forestation and deforestation. Um, and um, yeah, we we at ESIB, I mean, we are in a way a pro-market think tank in favor of free and non-discriminatory trade. And we once wrote a paper about EU technology sovereignty, where we touched upon the issue of uh, the EU's uh, shrinking economic cloud in the world over time. Hmm. Uh, the center of economic gravity, it's shifting towards Asia, um, that implies that the argument of opening markets, um, allowing for access to this huge EU market, which still is huge, will lose uh, relative strength. Now, I wonder, and this is, I will basically ask two follow-up questions. I wonder whether this relative decline in, uh, let's say, attractiveness of the EU market will still be enough in the future to convince others uh, that could be OECD countries, it would be middle power countries, to enter into serious negotiations and come to serious um, conclusions about specific uh, horizontal or sector-specific regulations. So the first question is about will the EU's market uh, size and the uh, incentive to grant access to the EU market will still be sufficient um, to um, encourage others to enter into negotiations, also comparing um, the market size of, let's say, China, uh, another uh, um, uh, geopolitical um, powerhouse, and the United States. So that would be one question. I have one more follow-up question to you, Rosie, but I want also to encourage our audience to raise questions. So please put them in the chat box. I see Martin Chorchik already raising his hand. I will get to back to you in a minute, but let us move uh, to uh, Rosie uh, for okay. his so reply. I'll, I'll try to be brief in order to open up for, for discussion. As you say, it's true that um, if the EU projects an image and by facts also contributes to cement that image that by strategic autonomy is actually shielding itself and making it less attractive for others to enter uh, the market. And I, they just have, or they will be just passive receivers of EU legislation by you know, the fact that these standards are gonna hit them even if they don't 
operate within uh, the internal market that can of course mm -hmm. be very negative. We have as guess you as well, you know, I wouldn't say great expectations, but we are expecting the two major reports on European competitiveness yep. by 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 Draghi and uh, and uh, sorry, uh, Enrico Letta. And Enrico Letta, yeah, by Draghi and Enrico Letta, uh, in order to 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 uh, to see, you know, how much, as I said, you know, in this debate between innovation and regulation, uh, how much, you know, can we change things in order to escape from that debate that uh, that uh, you know is a trade-off and so on. How to better regulate in order to to foster and to nurture innovation to be more attractive. That's you know we have mm. to turn the question mm. probably uh, around, as you said. But then there is a factor not only of how well or how bad we do at home, it's how Chinese and Americans are going to be doing. And here there are also you know we we we. We are right, and we have to be critical with ourselves, and 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 keep the debate and and the pressure, of course, on on remaining open and so on. But uh, but to which extent the IRA uh, is going to shift or not? Uh, is going to survive uh, an eventual access to Trump? You know, from Trump to power, is the IRA just industrial policy or environmental policy? Can you strip? The elements of uh, of you know climate change and decarbonization from that, and keep it just into industrial policy, which is maybe what Trump would want to to do. Um, mm -hmm. So, and and then China, no, to which extent its decoupling strategy is successful? We see that is there is already some shifting of their trade relations to to Asia, right? Uh, but at the end, we are so important for China as well, and they are actually kind of um, dumping <laughs> that excess capacity right on our markets. And we are still very important for American firms. So um, I'm, I'm confident that um, we are, despite our internal problems and debate, we're going to be still very important for, for the US and, and for China, um, especially if, um, if they are in situations in which they are not so confident that they can do this decoupling. And, mm. and it's very important for us to get it right because we are we we, we don't or we need to escape from this bipolar confrontation. Um, it is already damaging to have a cold war on tech. Uh, and we haven't seen yet what the consequences of these are going to be. But the more we're pushed to uh, to produce at home and to invest on technologies and rather than you know buy them on the market because there is geopolitical uncertainty you know the more costly this is so we are asking our economists like you to tell me how to be competitive while I tell you one hand to the back because there is geopolitical competition with China I tie you another hand to your back because Trump is coming and the U.S. protectionist, you know, um, how can you then deliver on what I am asking you to do is to, and then you want to be resilient mm. and not to be coerced and to have indigenous capacities and to do industrial policy. It's kind of a square in the circle. And some people are already talking of a trilemma there, right? That you are not going to be able to have it everything. Uh, you know, you cannot have a strategic autonomy and be uh, competitive at the same time. Uh, and keeps an, a, a rules-based international system functioning, 
there are some trade-offs there that you have to deal with. But uh, but I think I'm say I'm confident that Europe is strong enough in its market that um, even if we sometimes try to damage ourselves, uh, we're going to stand in relatively well relative to, to, to others who are maybe damaging themselves more than, than us in the near future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I share many of your views. Um, that's for sure. Um, what I what a thought that just came to my mind is, uh, and, and that's very much... Um, a key related to a key question that we want to address at this uh, webinar. And this is about what the EU, perhaps what needs to be done at member state capitals to improve the attractiveness of um, the EU as a um, legal regime in order to be able uh, to influence others to cooperate regulatory. Um, I can see, and that would be sort of a thesis for me at, at this point, that to many countries, China and the United States, they are more compelling in terms of offering either access to their markets or exchanging um um, exchange is, is the wrong word, or um, um, cooperating more closely when it comes to regulation or copy-pasting regulations, um, um, mutually accepting each other's regulations. When we look at the EU, and you mentioned this, we have a debate now again about competitiveness. The three presidencies, uh, Spain, uh, but also Belgium, and the next one, Hungary, they are all uh, working hard on how to increase the EU's future economic competitiveness, international competitiveness. But we've seen that before with the Lisbon strategy, with the, I think it was EU 2020 strategy, and all that did not really work out. What we saw is the EU becoming, I would say, more protectionist internally with regulation like um, GDPR uh, with regulation like um, the Digital Markets Act, but also uh, a relaxation of state-ed rules. And I wonder to what extent um, the EU's regu regulatory offer is actually at, um, appealing to other countries. When you look at GDPR, for example, there is indeed a process effect that is often uh, spoken about in, in panel discussions, but I would say it's a very weak effect. It has encouraged our governments to consider similar regulations, but none of there's no, not an existing government out there that exactly copy-pasted what we have in the EU. The same is true for gatekeeper regulation for digital policies in general. So I think what the EU really does with you know its signaling power is to encourage others to pursue similar or similar spirited policies outside the EU. But at the end, what we see is more regulatory fragmentation. What we also see is, and here I get back to the middle powers that you're referring to, um, here we don't see much appetite to consider or uh, uh, 
uh, or let, al let alone um, copy paste EU regulations and adopt it at the national level. So I wonder whether it would be more compelling for the EU to engage in a process of competitive liberalization within the EU's say, internal market to become a regulatory role model that others want to follow. What do you think about that? You know, basically uh, comparing the trend of, let's say, the past 20 years where the EU generally became more restrictive in terms of regulations internally, uh, to some extent also in, in, in trade policy, um, and the need to um, liberalize in order to revive economic dynamism in the EU. Well, I too that, you know, when you see that um, countries so distant uh, politically, but also in the way they, they, they look at many things in the world, uh, as Spain and the Netherlands, for example, they were the promoters of the open uh, the idea of open strategic autonomy, and uh, and this was done um, in governments with um, different colors. You know the, the social democrats in 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 Spain at the time, who uh, people may think that uh, are not uh, you know liberal when when they, when they come to trade issues and so on. But uh, but this is in in a sense I think. The coalition that you saw around open strategic economy, including largely, mm -hmm. you know, peripheral countries all around Europe to France and Germany, from Spain to Scandinavia mm -hmm. to the Baltic, Central Eastern Europe and the Netherlands, that tells you a bit about this idea that if you're not able to um, to dominate the process of lawmaking within Europe because at the end of the day, France and Germany are very heavy, and uh, and they 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 most of the time they they agree among themselves, and then the agreements they incorporate others, but it's largely by their design. Then that you import that competitiveness by being open in a sense, and that many countries, and this was part of the discussions that. Uh, Enrico Leta had with the Spanish authorities when he was in Madrid in preparation with of his of his report that we don't see um, that uh, that there is enough of a symmetry in how industrial policy and these big investments are taking place. We are not at a point in which we know in Europe we consider ourselves the United States of Europe, and therefore I don't care whether the microchips factory is in Germany or in Spain, because this is you know, Alabama or Georgia doesn't, at the end, okay, it, mm -hmm. it makes a difference if it's Alabama or Georgia uh, for, for those who are there, but it doesn't become an issue dividing Americans and so on. But we know that this is the case with that, what it's, uh, there is a risk that our uh, strategy of economic security um, ends up, ends up uh, making intra-EU differences larger rather than reducing uh, differences and, and promoting cohesion, um, it would uh, promote divergence. Uh, and we've seen that through the suspension of state aids and the massive investments that since um, the pandemic, through the war in Ukraine, uh, governments of France and Germany have been able to do as compared to other governments, right? So, um, so I think 
we we need that kind of internal competition within the EU, mm. but uh, smaller and weaker weaker countries uh, try to import that or try to keep the EU open as a way to make sure that um, that uh, you know European champions are not Franco-German champions only, and that there is kind of a fair distribution. Of, um, of of industrial uh, policies, so I think I think that's uh, that's very important, um, and uh, it's true that. But I would also say that I, I may agree, and I think you know we've talked, you know, just just when you think what is the next commission going to legislate about, because everything has been done <laughs> right in these last five years, right. Uh, are there any fields in which we have not started a regulatory process uh, that uh, that we've mi- have we missed anything? You know, how are you going to draft the next uh, agenda for the next five years? It's going to be mostly about implementation, about correcting, about looking at overlapping uh, regulations, about how to make them work for all and, and so on, rather than, I mean, it's quite difficult to see or to, to, to envisage that we could spend another five years regulating that much. And I think mm-hmm. AI is going to be, and, and digital economy is going to be a very good case in point to see, okay, now we have our own legislation. We are we have understood uh, that it, it's important for the EU to have its own legislation, but then to work with the G7 and with the UN and even with UNESCO in trying to not do the Brussels effect, but trying to 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 you know to to work in the same or along the same lines or at least have parallel legislations, even if they don't cross themselves in the future, uh, but they are parallel. They are not just clashing uh, one 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 with each other. Um, and uh, and as you said, if we are able to uh, to now look at regulation from the smart regulation point of view, we have the AI legislation. Now, let's see how do you support from that or with that or starting from that base, all the things that you need, you're not having in order to be able to innovate on AI, right? From digital, from ecosystem, innovation ecosystems to capital markets and so on. So completing the internal market and completing, making a good diagnosis of what is it that despite having good or no regulation at all, wouldn't still be working in the EU because you don't have an internal market. And this is something Enrico Letta has been kind of going around and collecting lots of examples of things that are not properly working. So even if regulation, Mm -hmm. even if you remove regulation, you wouldn't still have that because you you need a better regulation or you need to move regulation on capital markets farther uh, uh, down the road. So um, I think there is, a, as I said, you know, as we said at the beginning, we're very much looking forward to this push to internal market and, and, and competitiveness. Because at the end of the day, you know, we have American firms that are much more efficient in the single market. They are much more able to use economies of scale and to and to extract benefits from the single market than European firms. Why is that? Why is that? Because they play with the same rules. You know, why mm. don't we mm. have firms being able to do cloud services at the EU? It must not be mm. because of the regulation, because American firms are going to be playing with the same and are playing with the same regulations as European firms. So let's start looking elsewhere and elsewhere uh, where these problems are.
Yeah. Yeah. Alan just sent me a message. Uh, he had a medical issue. So, yeah. Um, so at least we have a little more clarity about that. Um, we may have it on another occasion uh, on the topic, obviously related to the World Trade Organization and the future of the organization, given the geopolitical issues and the institutional constraints we see. Um, I don't see any additional questions in the chat box. So I would suggest that we come to a close. Um, thank you very much, Rosé, for taking the time to present your thoughts on the topic of strategic interdependence, but also EU competitiveness and um, modes of cooperation between the EU and individual countries in the future. Uh, I think we digressed a bit here and there, but it was a very insightful um, intervention by you. And with that, I... Yeah, can only encourage our audience to give you a very warm virtual applause. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You know, I miss Alan and I would be happy to to listen when he when you invite him. Please count on me also because I think it would be great to 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 listen to his views. Okay. And thanks yeah. everyone for, for, for bearing with me as well for just uh, for one hour. <laughs> yeah, it was a quick hour. Thank you very much. <laughs> At least for <laughs> Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.